aspects of power in the Christian life. One is the Word of God, and the other is the filling of the Holy Spirit. They work in tandem together. Uh, without the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit, then anything we do when we're listening to the teaching of God's Word is just wood, hay, and stubble. We're not accessing the real power that we have through the uh, indwelling or through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, we are taught the Word. He communicates. It helps us to understand these spiritual truths stored in our soul so that we can recall it later when we need to apply these principles. So before we get started, we need to uh, apply the principles of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, that means to admit or acknowledge our sins in privacy to God the Father. If we confess our sins, then He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse or purify us from all unrighteousness. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments to see that we are right with the Lord and in fellowship, and then we will open with prayer before we look at His Word. Father, we thank You that Your Word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and that Your Word sheds light in every area of our life, that within Your Word are many magnificent promises that you have provided everything we need for life and godliness. That means that there is no stone unturned, there is no situation in life, there is no heartache, there is no adversity, there is no difficulty, there is no situation whatsoever that you did not know of in eternity past and provide for in a sufficient way through your word for us to handle. And so now as we study these things about adversity and stress and how to face uh, the trials and tests of life, and apply doctrine in those situations. Pray that you would guide and direct our thinking, give us and strengthen our concentration, that we may uh, store these things in our soul for future use. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had an interesting time the last couple of days. Went down to uh, D.C. That was my first trip to D.C. And every year, uh, Pastor Theme travels to, does about 12 conferences. He's just remarkable. Many of you haven't met him. He just had his 80th birthday and has more energy than any three of us. Uh, he, uh, uh, up until a co- just a few years ago, he usually did about 14 or 15 conferences a year, and we managed to scale him back to about 12 a year. And he's been coming to D.C. for about uh, 20 years, and I hope that we can... Uh, they used to have a, uh, a New England conference up until a couple of years ago, and I hope that we can reinstate that and maybe sometime a year from this fall, have him come up here and uh, have a conference here uh, for the New England area. So I met several key people while I was down there at the conference, and it was good to be down there. But So I got up this morning and drove back, so I spent most of the day on the highway. Speaking of testing, open your Bibles with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. To continue our study on adversity and stress, as soon as you find your place, we'll just review these verses to make sure we, just to bring our attention back, focus our concentration on what we're studying. Beginning in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into or run into or encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance produce maturity, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. Now, last week, as we got into this, we began to study the difference between adversity and stress, and we looked at God's solution and the ten stress busters or problem-solving devices, and we were going through those. And just my, my I want to stop a minute and talk about my methodology here because some of you were a little frustrated; you didn't get everything written down. There are several important themes that run all the way through James, Galatians, John, any book of the Bible. As we look at those, and as I look at those books and overview them, I'm sort of highlighting certain key doctrines that we really need to pay attention to as we go through those 
We could spend forever in James going one clause at a time and deal with lots of different things, but we want to focus on some of the main ideas that are here and really get into some depth on these things. So as we approach it, it's going to be like peeling an onion. And we're going to uncover a little more and get a little deeper into each of these doctrines as we go work our way through the epistle. So as we start now, I'm introducing you to some of these things that may be a little new. We're going to see those overheads over and over and over again. I've got to inculcate this into everybody so it just becomes a natural response. When we encounter trials, we need to know how to respond. It needs to be automatic because when the test comes, when we get in the midst of that difficulty, it's too late to learn it. Whenever you you get into the classroom for that final exam, it's too late to open the books and start studying You need to have done your homework and learned it so that you can go through that without any difficulty. So we're going to be going over these things more and more. We're going to flesh these things out a little more detail. But right now, I'm just sort of giving you the overview of what these are. Make sure sort of a familiarization tour to make sure you understand what these ten are. Because I think that most of them are familiar to you. Make sure you know what they are. Give you those definitions. And we'll just begin to work our way through these concepts Probably with, by the time we get to the end of the first chapter, you will be sick of seeing all of these things and ready to move on to something else. But we will persevere, which is one of the themes of the book. So, having read these first few verses, I want you to just hold your place there in James, because we won't be back there for a while tonight. And we will turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. This verse reads in the English, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to, to endure it, which is a fairly good translation except for the very beginning. Now, the very first word in the Greek text is the word perosmos. Which is spelled in English P-E-I-R-A-S-M-O-S. Now, the interesting thing in the Greek is to bring over a little... Uh, grammar that we've studied on Sunday morning is that this is an anarthrous noun. That means it does not have the definite article in the Greek. And what we learned in our study in John 1.1 is that the article in Greek functions differently from the article in English. When a noun appears without the article in Greek, you have to ask yourself, is this indefinite in the sense of a temptation, or is the writer emphasizing the quality of the noun? And I think that's what's happening here. He's emphasizing the quality of the noun or the essence of the noun, meaning any kind of temptation, whatever it is, any category that you can come up with is covered by this phrase uh, or or testing. The meaning of the word is to test, and in some context it means, uh, has the context of temptation. But we have to carefully understand what this is talking about. It is testing in the objective sense. And it only becomes a temptation if it's internalized subjectively. So the context really determines whether we're talking about a temptation or a test. Remember in James 1, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will eventually, it says that God doesn't tempt anyone. The word there is perosmos. God doesn't tempt anyone. And there the focus is on temptation. So we have to take a few minutes. If we're going to understand James 1, it says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, tests, perosmos, we have to understand what this word means. A test describes, let's start off with a definition. A test describes an external set of circumstances which arouse in the sin nature a desire to choose a course of action for resolving the test, a sinful course of thought, word, or action. In other words, as we're going through life, we discover from James 
that we just fall into these things. And that's the same idea here that we pick up from the verb, which we'll look at in a minute, is all of a sudden we're overtaken by a test. It's something that is external to us. It just comes. Boom. All of a sudden, there's the adversity. And it hits us. Now, we have a choice. Our volition immediately comes into play. We can say yes to doctrine or no to doctrine. Let me chart this a little different way. We go through life represented by this line here. And then we come to the cross. Our first decision, the most important decision in anyone's life, is what they think about Jesus Christ. They have a choice to believe or to reject Jesus Christ as their Savior. They can be negative to the gospel and reject Christ as their Savior, or they can be positive and accept Christ as their Savior. That's the most important decision in anyone's life. The second most important decision in anyone's life is after salvation, what? What do you do after you're saved? Are you going to be positive to God's Word and learning it and applying it and growing to spiritual maturity? Are you just going to forget? See, a lot of people think, you know, when you, we'll, we'll talk about uh, testimonies and that on Sunday morning when we get into John. But you hear a lot of people give testimonies and they stand up in the pulpit and they say, I was a dirty, rotten sinner. I was a drunk. I was a drug addict and I beat my wife and then I was saved and then I became worse. No. <laughs> but that can't happen because after salvation, you can just reject the Word. You don't want to grow to spiritual maturity and you just fall off into total absolute carnality and continue that way until God takes you out under the sin unto death. Or you can go forward. If you're going forward and growing in the spiritual life, that one started drying up. I'll throw it there so I remember it. You start growing in the spiritual life. As you go a certain distance, then what happens is you hit tests of faith. Now, when that word is used in Scripture, it is pistis, which refer, can, has two meanings. It has an active meaning, which is faith. And it has a sort of a passive meaning. It's a noun, but it's a passive meaning. That which is believed. That is doctrine. So these are tests of doctrine. Tests are designed to evaluate how you're using the doctrine in your soul. It's like a final exam. And at each test, you have your choice, yes or no, to apply the doctrine that's in your soul. As you go forward, the test continues, you have further options, and this relates to endurance. And we're going to fill in the gaps here as we go through our study, and we have this upper cycle. Now, if we were to chart that one way or the other, as you go through the Christian life, the process of sanctification, here you're saved, phase one, justification, saved from the penalty of sin, eternal life is no longer Our eternal damnation is no longer the issue because you now have eternal life. If you continue to grow, you go through these cycles of testing and endurance and you continue to grow toward spiritual maturity. If you choose to reject the doctrines of the spiritual life in the Scripture and, and not grow, then you go this way. We will flesh out the dynamics of each process as we go Ultimately, you come here as a believer, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, to the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, our ultimate evaluation. And that relates to evaluating how we've handled our, our testing. So testing has to do with external circumstances, and these give you an option to choose, yes, positive volition, apply the doctrine in your soul, or respond in negative volition and say no, and rely on the Holy Spirit, in which case you will introduce stress in your soul. So the test is a set of external circumstances which arouse in the sin nature a desire to get out from under that pressure, that external pressure on the soul, and to resolve the test through some sinful course of action, either through thinking, bitterness, anger, resentment, hostility, uh, vindictiveness, revenge motivation, through words, through maligning people, sins of the tongue, gossip, things like that, or through overt sins, which would involve things such as uh, murder, stealing, uh, adultery, things like that. 
So those cover the three categories of sins, mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. Temptation itself always arises from the area of weakness in the sin nature. So we need to stop a minute, make sure we all understand what the sin nature is. Within every human being, in the cell structure of every human being, there is a sin nature. Diagram it with a diamond. The top, we have an area of weakness. The area of weakness is that area that tempts the soul to commit personal sin. The area of weakness, because in each each person they have an area where they are very areas in their life where they're very susceptible to sin, and from the area of weakness we produce temptation to the soul to sin, and it does not we do not yield to it, and it does not become sin until the volition acquiesces to the temptation that arises from the sin nature. So temptation always arises from the area of weakness and tempts the soul, and the volition has the opportunity to be negative uh, or positive, to resist by using doctrine. So the area of weakness tempts to commit personal sins in these three categories. They are mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. Mental attitude sins include pride, envy, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, anger, implacability, guilt feelings, fear, worry, anxiety, self-pity. Uh, scripture for th- those categories are Proverbs 8.13, Isaiah 41.10, Philippians 4.6, 1 John 2.11. I'll run through those one more time. Proverbs 8.13, Isaiah 41.10, Philippians 4.6, and 1 John 2.11. Mental attitude sins are the most destructive in the spiritual life, and they can quickly initiate a whole variety of sins that, that just began to uh, explode off of each other. Uh, sins of the tongue include uh, uh, sins of gossip, maligning, criticizing, lying. Uh, James 3 will get into the sins of the tongue. Just see how damaging and destructive that is. Uh, there we read in James 3, 5 through 6, So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Behold, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. One of the most damaging things you can do is get involved with sins of the tongue. And you see some really interesting things take place with people. One of the things we talked about this uh, uh, just among, among ourselves this weekend is how, how Americans never talk about theology and politics. I mean, in everyday conversation, the things that you're supposed to stay away from in American culture never talk about theology and politics, which makes our conversations insipid and dull and meaningless. The British had a great system. Under the British system, let me see if I can remember all five of these, there were five things you never talked about. And, you know, this is really good. You ought to write this down and make it a part of your life. Number one, you never talked about money problems. Never, ever discuss money problems. Nobody cares. It's boring. It's dull. Nobody wants to hear about your money problems. Number two, you never talk about your servants. Don't we just love that? Don't we wish we had that problem? You never talk about, never discuss the servants with other people. It's none of their business. The third thing is you never talk about your health problems. Never discuss health with other people. Most people really, after a few minutes, they get tired and bored and it's, you just don't talk about your health problems. Fourth, you don't talk about your kids. You ever notice that? You see that with young couples all the time. They get together and all they ever talk about is the babies and the diapers and the pediatricians. And, you know, it's just dull and boring. And fifth, you never talk about your spouse. So what's left? Religion and politics. But see, if you think about this, when you talk about these things, related to, relating this to sins of the tongue, when you talk about these things, you're talking about your money problems. You're talking about the problems you're having with your servants or whatever, people who work for you. Uh, you're talking about the problems that you're having in your life and health and your kids and your spouse. And that all comes out to spell one thing, self-absorption. Self, self, self. And Americans live in the most narcissistic, self-absorbed society and all we can think about is ourselves 
So what we do is we talk about ourselves. How dull and boring that is, and it's just pure, raw arrogance. And we need to challenge ourselves not to have conversations that relate to these things. It's terrible among spouses. And that's the kind of thing that can lead to a dull, boring marriage. Is because all you ever talk about when the husband comes home, you talk about all the problems you had with the kids during the day, or you talk about money problems or whatever, and it just leads to a very dull existence. You need to uh, bring some spice and uh, into your life and talk about things that are more stimulating, build your intellect, build your mentality, and get away from self-absorption, which every American just seems to uh, dwell in. So you stay away from those kinds of sins of the tongue. The third category of sin is a category of overt sins. And that's what most people think of when you say, what are the really bad sins? What do you get from most people? Murder, adultery, fornication. And yet when you look at God's list of sins that are, in, um, that are in, uh, listed in Proverbs, he doesn't list all those things as, uh, as the worst sins. He lists uh, things like mental attitude sins and some of the other things as the worst sins that, that man faces. So, um, um, the uh, overt sins are not the worst sins. It's the mental attitude sins that underlie the overt sins that are the ones that are the most destructive. Galatians 5, 19-21 gives us a good list of, of uh, sins that are produced by the sin nature. Now, the deeds of the flesh, that's the sin nature... This is called the flesh. That's why we say, because throughout Scripture it uses terms like body of sin and flesh to describe the sin nature, that it has its home, not in the soul, but in the genetic structure of the body. That's why it's passed on from one generation to the other by the Father. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, which is really drug addiction. It's pharmakeia in the Greek, which is the word we get our English word pharmacy from, uh, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, things like these. So Paul gives us a nice little list there in Galatians 5 of some of the overt sins that are produced by, um, by the sin nature. Now the next area of the sin nature is the area of strength. Now this is where you are not susceptible to temptation. This is where you're strong. Now, this person over here may be very strong in certain areas and never yield to temptation, not even get attracted by, by certain areas of sin. And so, this person over here really has difficulty with those same sins and temptations. And this person over here wants to judge this person. Well, I don't have any trouble with it, so why do you have trouble with it? Just say no. And this person over here, of course, is stronger in other areas than this person, and so you want to judge one another. Well, we can't do that because we all have certain sins that will plague us and give us terrible difficulty all of our lives. And hopefully by the time we go to be with the Lord, we can get some kind of grip on some of those sins. But everybody has certain sins, certain areas of weakness that are very, very difficult to deal with and will struggle all their life. And the way that God deals with us is different. Every single person is dealt with differently. Now, don't use this to rationalize your struggle against sin. But you have to realize that every person is different, so you can't judge somebody else by how God's dealing with you. Maybe when you were first saved, there was a particular sin in your life that God you convicted you about, you felt a lot of guilt about, and, and immediately you dealt with that and never had any more trouble with it. And this person over here has still been a believer for 20 or 30 years, and they're still struggling with that sin. Well, you don't have any right to evaluate them by your standard, because you're not the standard, and your experience is not the standard. So you need to just shut up and keep moving and, and pray for them that they can endure and persevere and ultimately deal with that in their lives and never talk about it. Don't worry about it. It's none of your business. It's between them and the Lord, and you need to stay out of it. So everybody has areas of strength and areas of weakness. Now, the area of strength becomes operational only after the, the believer chooses to sin. Once you choose to sin, then, and only then, does your sin nature become operative. Up to that point, you're in fellowship, you have a test. You have a choice, apply doctrine or not. You decide not to apply doctrine, that's the temptation. You decide not to apply doctrine, so you're going to sin. And once you make that choice, then the sin nature becomes operative and you begin to operate 
under the arrogance of your um, of uh, your area of strength, and that produces human good. This, these are good deeds that um, the Bible calls dead works in Hebrews six one. They're good deeds that can be performed by believer and unbeliever alike. You see, the problem with most Christians is they don't have any system of mechanics to differentiate between good deeds that are produced in the power of the Holy Spirit and good deeds that are produced in the power of the sin nature. And the only way that you can distinguish is through confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9, which is the mechanic or the means by which you come under the uh, filling of the Holy Spirit so that you can utilize the Word of God to produce divine good. Otherwise, all you're doing is operating in morality. And anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. And most Christians are out there trying and trying and living good moral lives, which is wonderful. We wouldn't want them to be living immoral lives. But they're living good moral lives thinking that is spirituality. But remember the principle. Anything an unbeliever can do is not part of the spiritual life. Because the spiritual life is that which is uniquely produced in the believer by the Holy Spirit. As a result of the intake of Bible doctrine and its residency in your soul. Now, everybody produces a certain amount of human good. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15 tells us that as we go through life, we produce certain things on our foundation of salvation. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. So there are six categories of works there. I don't think that they, they each re, do not refer to specific things. They just talk about that which is valuable and that which has no value. That which, which survives the uh, burning and that which cannot survive burning. Don't push the analogy too far. Each man's work will become evident for the day, that is, the day of the judgment seat of Christ, will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire. Now, the analogy here is that of refining. This is something that anybody in that era would understand. You take a bunch of material, you put it in the refiner's fire, and that which is dross, the wood, hay, and straw, is going to be burned up and consumed by the fire. But fire cannot consume gold, silver, and precious stones. It will burn off all the impurities and just leave the purified gold, silver, and precious stones there. So the analogy is that as you go through life, you're making all kinds of productions. Sometimes you're not even sure whether what you're producing is under the filling of the Holy Spirit or not. You just, you just hope that it is. You continue to rebound. Use 1 John 1, 9 and hope that what you're producing is in the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore is divine good. And then only at the judgment seat of Christ will we know. There may be a lot of believers there who look like, boy, they have done all kinds of great things for God in life and they're left with nothing because it was all done in the power of the sin nature and it's all human good. Scripture says, if any man's work which he has built upon it, that is the foundation of his salvation, gospel of Jesus Christ, which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. At the judgment seat of Christ, this is the final evaluation. Everything's burned up to see what survives. It's not to determine what you've done wrong. Dokimazo, which is the word for evaluation, has to do with testing something for approval, not testing something for disapproval. At no point when you come to before Jesus Christ or God the Father are they going to run up all the sins that you committed in life and say, okay, you committed all these sins, now we're going to take care of it. Because your sins were all taken care of at the cross. It's no longer an issue. They were paid for in full. There's no law of double jeopardy. And so what's going to happen is that, that uh, the issue here is your good works, divine good or human good. And that which you produced under the filling of the Holy Spirit by the application of doctrine, has enduring value. That's what's left over. That's the gold, silver, and precious stones. If it, that's what the basis for your rewards. That's how you build capacity for eternity. That relates to the fifth problem-solving device that we studied last week, or the sixth, which is your personal sense of an eternal destiny. Living today in light of eternity, recognizing the decisions you make today, how you handle the tests of life, the tests of faith, determine your capacity for eternity. What you will be then, you are becoming now by the decisions you make. So if any man's work, on the other hand, is burned up, he shall suffer loss, not of salvation, but of rewards. 
but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. So the sin nature produces human good, and that will be evaluated and judged at the, at the judgment seat of Christ called the Bema seat. Remember, human good is our self-righteousness, and God says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in Isaiah 64, 6. Now, the sin nature has two trends. You have a trend over here and a trend over here. The trend over here is towards lasciviousness, towards antinomianism. This is from a Greek word, anti, meaning against. Namos, meaning law, means you're against any rules and regulations in life. Antinomianism. An antinomian is one who uses 1 John 1, 9 as a license for sin. Golly, it doesn't really matter. Uh, God's going to forgive me anyway, so I'm just going to keep doing it. Now, almost every baby, immature believer uses 1 John 1, 9 as a license for sin. A sign of your growing out of immaturity is that you quit doing that. But I don't know of anybody who, who doesn't at some point in their life think that grace is something to be taken advantage of. In fact, you don't really understand grace if you haven't thought about taking advantage of it. You really don't. Because grace means that it's not up to you. God did all the work. And the sign of maturity is that you're not taking advantage of it. So lasciviousness, antinomianism, this all produces a trend towards immorality. And if you continue in this, then you go down the road of immoral, not immortal, immoral degeneracy. That's what most people are familiar with. Now, the other side produces asceticism, and legalism. This is the idea of good works, being impressed by how good we are. Asceticism is I'm going to give up things for God. I'm going to fast. Somehow impress God that I'm not going to eat today and I'm not going to drink and that'll impress God. And so when I pray, He'll answer my prayer. I'm bargaining with God. Uh, yeah, great examples of that uh, among the, the rise of monasticism in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century A.D. You had men like Simon Stylides who was one of the first pillar saints. Now, these pillar saints were great. I just love to read about them because they would go out into the desert in Syria and they would erect these, these pillars. They would start off with one that was about two feet high and they would sit on it all day long. See how long they could sit on it. Week, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. No baths. They didn't use dial, but everybody wished they did. Hair would grow long, beards would grow long, and people thought, my, how spiritual. They've separated themselves from the world, and they're living out in the desert. And then, after maybe six or eight months of this, they would say, I'm going to become a little more spiritual. So they would build a pillar that was six feet tall, then one that was ten feet tall, then fifteen feet tall, twenty feet tall. And Simon Stylides was one of these guys he sat on top of a 20-foot tall pillar for six years. Never came down. And people would come from miles, hundreds of miles from all over the Roman Empire to hear his wonderful words of wisdom. Because anybody that spiritual who would sit out on a pole in the middle of the desert for year after year after year just had to be close to God. I mean, he was, used to be two-feet pillar, now it's a 20-foot pillar. He's 18 feet closer to God. So uh, that, that's asceticism. People who are going to give up things to, to impress God. Uh, legalism is the idea that somehow the things I don't do are going to make me uh, a, a better believer. And uh, I'm just not going to do this and not do that. And this usually focuses on the gray areas in life that relate to uh, oh, you know, alcohol, gambling, uh, can, can relate to food consumption, can relate to just about anything. And th- this erects various forms of taboos. And taboos are humanistic systems or standards that are artificially set up by a culture, and those standards become absolutes in the spiritual life. I mean, we're, we, we did this in the, in, as a culture in the 20s with alcohol and prohibition, and we're getting ready to do it with, uh, with tobacco because we've gotten so self-righteous. I mean, I've heard of Europeans who won't come to America because we've lost our whole concept of freedom. They have more freedom in Europe, they say, than in the United States. We have to pay attention to that because we're coming more and more under the tyranny of moral degeneracy. And this is what happens over here is the people that emphasize all of this morality ultimately end up in moral degeneracy. 
And this is where the Pharisees were at the time of Christ. Jesus would go to parties. Uh, John the Baptist never went to parties because he didn't use dial at all. He just wore an old camel hair coat and ate locusts and honey and lived out in the desert. And the high society didn't care a whole lot for John the Baptist, but Jesus was much more socially acceptable. And he went to parties with all of the, uh, the elite of Jerusalem. And uh, he, he ate at their sumptuous banquets. So the Pharisees said that he was a glutton. He drank of wine, so the Pharisees called him a drunkard. Because they had fallen into moral degeneracy where they were establishing false systems and false standards to measure, external standards, to measure a person's spirituality or closeness to God. Now, the core of the sin nature are your lust patterns. This is the motivation that drives the sin nature. And you have all kinds of lust. You have approbation lust, which is the desire for approval, trying to get people to like you, to approve of you, to uh, tell you good things about what you've done, and feeding off of that approbation. You have power lust, the decision for power. And those two you find in churches a lot. You find people who want to become deacons and pastors because they operate on power lust and they want that sense of authority and control and power over people. And approval, approbation lust. I've run into that a few times in churches. You have sexual lust, social lust, people who desire to be social climbers and have all of the trappings of society and social approval. Monetary lust, materialism lust, inordinate ambition which results then in inordinate competition, revenge lust, criminal lust, chemical lust, lust for drugs, lust for alcohol. These are all part of the lust pattern of the sin nature. Uh, Pleasure lust. A crusader lust. All of these are the motivators of the sin nature and drive the sin nature towards one uh, trend or the other, either towards lasciviousness. And you might even be fairly lascivious most of the time in your life, but every now and then, boom, you're over here in asceticism and legalism, and that crops its, its head up, and then, then you're back over here. Sometimes you may be a real legalist, but you have one area in your life, boy, you're just as antinomian and and licentious as you can be, and uh, that really shocks you. So that sends you right back over here into legalism, and you have to go through all kinds of things to make sure you you, uh, impress God with how guilty you feel about the sins that you have committed. So the the sin nature uh, gains control of the life at a point when you respond negatively to the test. So you go through a test and it gives the sin nature an opportunity to tempt the soul with a course of action. Now the verse then goes on to read Wendy up here and blows my pages. It says, There is no test overtaken you. And this is the perfect tense of Lombano which has the, which the perfect tense emphasizes the present results of a past action. And this, the idea here is that of, of being overtaken, of having uh, uh, something come up on you. Lombano means to take or to receive or to, uh, to overtake or to be seized by something. It's the idea that no test has seized you or t- overtaken you. It's the idea of a surprise, that you just fall into this, as James says. No test has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And this word is the Greek word anthropinos, from the word for man, anthropos. A-N-T-H, I want to keep writing in Greek, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-I-N-O-S, anthropinos. And the ending there makes it something that is, um, something that's very human. Something that uh, that is according to man, something that and in the in, it's an idiom for that which is bearable because everybody's going to go through these kinds of tests. Everybody, even the Lord Jesus Christ, went through every category of testing, and during his time on the earth, he was demonstrating through the, how to live under the power of the Holy Spirit because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't have a sin nature. So he was not tempted on the inside subjectively, but he went through every category of external test, and he never chose to sin. 
And the, the scripture says, There is no testing overtaken you, but such as is really bearable. That means everybody goes through it, so there is a way to bear up under it. Now, there are several categories of adversity that are common to man, and we need to go through these, these categories of adversity. The first is social adversity. Social adversity. This is when you, you lose your social life, you lose friends, uh, maybe it involves a uh, broken romance, uh, marital problems, personality conflicts with somebody, uh, injustice from some other person you feel somehow uh, uh, rejected by them. Uh, second category is historical disaster. Historical disaster includes uh, economic disaster from a recession or depression. One of the things that we spent some time discussing uh, over the weekend with uh, several people who are very involved in, with computers and finance and the uh, business world is this whole uh, 2K problem that they're talking about. That's the n new buzzword for it. That's the year 2000 problem. I don't know how many of you are aware of that, but they have, uh, when they first started building computers, uh, they had no idea how dependent our society would become on dependent on computers. So like today's the, what, the 27th? So you just write the date 5-27-98. So they put the year into the computers with two digits, 98. Well, in the year 2000, we're going to roll over to 00, and the computers won't be able to differentiate whether that's 1900 or 2000. So it's going to create a big glitch, and they've tested this on computers, and they just fry internally, uh, trying to figure out which way it is. Now, this is going to have incredible consequences in banking. Let's say you have a mortgage loan and the computer is going to roll over and all of a sudden you got the loan in let's say 1993 and you've had it for seven years and it's charging seven years interest and it's going to roll over and say it's 1900 and now you've got 100 years of interest. Uh, the ramifications of this are phenomenal. In the federal government uh, we sort of gloat because the IRS has not even begun to work on the problem and their computers are all very old so they could all crash and we could uh, ha have some wonderful things occur because of that. <laughs> the Social Security Administration has been aware of the problem. They're about eight, they've solved about 80% of it in their computers. Um, in banking, in the banking economic world related to uh, uh, Wall Street, international finance, uh, when you realize that we're living in a global economy today, the consequences of this can, are going to be devastating because the, the third world, Asian economies, are not even aware of this. When you realize how intertwined all investment is worldwide with the Japanese market, Hong Kong market, all these other markets in Asia that we're invested in, and all their computers that they have that are very, fairly antiquated and they haven't even begun to address uh, this problem, that when their computers all crash and the banks lose records of everybody's money and investments and everything, it, it could just lead to, a, and many people are predicting that it's going to lead to a massive recession. So um, one of the, uh, I've had several people advise that one of the wise things to do is to get a savings, uh, savings deposit box and start putting your money away so that you have two or three months worth of cash readily available in a safety deposit box because when this happens, nobody knows really what the impact is going to be, but you will have enough cash because it may devastate banking uh, the banking community for a month or two. You may not be able to get your money back because you don't have a little passbook account anymore. It's all on computer. This is something that is, that is very, very serious and it's going to be very interesting to see its ramifications uh, when that comes along. In fact, uh, the um, uh, air traffic control computers are another area of computers that have not had uh, any, they're very antiquated, and uh, one airline, U.S. Air, has already stated that they may not uh, have any flights scheduled for that day. So this is the seriousness with which some people uh, are addressing this year 2000 problem. So that's a, one example of historical disaster that could occur. Uh, recession, depression, warfare, uh, having a nation defeated in war, uh, diplomatic defeat, loss of uh, establishment principles, loss of freedom, the violence of a revolution, becoming the victim of terrorism or persecution. This is all part of historical disasters. 
Uh, third category is criminal disaster, being the victim of some crime, uh, robbery, rape, embezzlement, blackmail, child abuse, abuse, incest, or various other crimes. Um, fourth category is vilification, where you are the victim of people running you down, spreading lies about you, gossiping, maligning, slandering, uh, being the victim of the uh, somebody creating a public lie about you and running you down. All of this, a loss of reputation, an unjust loss of reputation. All of this is part of vilification uh, adversity. A fifth category of adversity is rejection. Many people go through rejection, and many people think they go through rejection when they don't, but they react the same way. Social isolation, business isolation, losing a job, um, being fired, uh, just being laid off, uh, all of this involves is part of rejection, unfair treatment, being a victim of prejudice, being rejected by someone you love and care about, being rejected by a spouse or a friend, uh, being a uh, passed over from, for promotion, or being fired from your job unfairly. This is all part of rejection, uh, adversity, and tests that go along with that. A sixth category of weather disasters. Weather disasters involve uh, blizzards and ice storms, uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods. All of these relate to weather disasters. Loss of health includes disease, uh, pain, uh, terminal illnesses, starvation. You have another category, handicap, adversity, blindness, being a, a paralyzed, uh, losing parts of your body, perhaps as a result of a stroke, and then nine would be the loss, loss of a loved one. These are just some of the adversities that are common to man, and we never know when any of these things are going to come in to our lives. We can even include mechanical disasters like uh, around the house, a failure of any hot water heater, washing machine, car breaking down. Any of those are various. Uh, adversities that come into our lives to give us the opportunity to apply doctrine and, and accelerate our growth in spiritual maturity, or to reject doctrine and cave into the pressure of the sin nature to uh, respond through uh, various sins. Uh, Trouble is one of the key words that the Bible uses to describe the adversity that we face. In Psalm 9 9, we told that the Lord will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold of time of doctrine. And that's the concept that our soul is protected by the Lord. The Lord will provide a way of handling all of this as we will see in this verse in just a minute. Psalm 119.143. Trouble and anguish of family. However, your commandments are my delight. Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and our strength. A very pleasant time in time of trouble. Here we have a Greek word, 
Uh-huh. 